Verse 11, by the way. If we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fail. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace and with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, we've been in this series of, with respect to Hebrews, and we're continuing chapter by chapter, verse by verse as we go. And I wanted to just give you two objectives this morning in getting started. First is to remind us, because it's very important, the context of this passage. Paul, the writer of Hebrews is talking about how the children of Israel came out of Egypt disobeyed God, did not continue faithfully, and were forbidden entrance into the promised land. And then, uh, and, and he goes through this, and this comes up again and again in today's message, as you will see. It's very important to remember that. And sometimes we come to scriptures and we don't see the context, the background, the history of it, and it can, we can miss something very important. The second thing I wanted to do this morning is to pose the question of where is the line between salvation by grace and salvation by works. We talked about last week that this rest is a symbol, a metaphor for salvation. We enter rest. And yet we're told that we're saved by grace, not by works. It's not by the things I've done or the things I hope to do. It is by God's mercy and grace that I am saved and rescued from my sins. And yet in this text, he says, let us do our best. In fact, the, the, uh, uh, I believe I have it on another slide here just let me see if I can get down here. Hebrews 4.11 from the English Standard Version, he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Isn't that interesting? The rest symbolizes salvation. It symbolizes salvation by grace. And yet he says, strive to enter that rest. Where is the line between them? It reminds us of this passage from Matthew, which we touched on last week as well. He says, enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter in by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Notice that. Enter the gate. But the gate represents salvation. And we don't enter by works or effort. We enter by grace. You see the same thing in Luke. And he uses this word. In, in Luke's version of that passage from Matthew, he says, strive. And the Greek word strive is what we get our English word agony from. He says there's this agony to entering through the gate. Strive against all the odds and all the pressures that would keep you. Enter it. This is where life is. But how do we separate then this idea of entering by grace and yet striving to make sure we enter and don't miss it? What is the balance? Well, I want to give you at least part of the answer today is this, that balance comes in understanding the contrast between faith claims which are easy 
and discipleship, which is difficult. It's easy to say, I believe. It's not so easy to stand firm in the world of temptation and learn how to live with the restrictions of the Christian life. A true believer has a sense, has a grasp upon the challenges that await them in the Christian life. This is really what Jesus is getting at. The, the, the gate is there, and it's, it's narrow, meaning there's only one gate, there's only one way through, but when you get through the gate, see, some people don't get this. They think, well, once I'm in the gate, I'm basically living just like I lived before I entered the gate. No, no, my friends. True salvation produces a change of heart. And I'm now looking at things differently and focusing upon them. Listen to this passage, and this is a, a lengthy passage because it has to do with the idea of counting the cost. Jesus says, count the cost. I, uh, it's good to have Janice with us this morning, and she asked a couple of questions about this service, one of which is why we, we didn't give an invitation well, sometimes you know everybody here is pretty much a Christian, but you all know that I do not, I'm not a fan, I should say, of the idea of a, pray this prayer, you're a Christian, because I don't think we challenge people to count the cost. Do you understand what it means to become a Christian? In our culture and society, people just, they come in, they hear a message, they say, I believe in God, and they think they're saved, and that's what's wrong with our culture. <laughs> I was disturbed. I mean, our governor says he's a Christian. And yet this week he said, it's okay to abort babies during this crisis, but if you've got an elective surgery, you can't have that. If you, if you want a knee replacement, you can't have that. You might infect somebody. You might, you might do that to them, but it's okay to kill a baby. My goodness. And he would claim to be a follower of Christ. Oh, no, it's easy to say, I believe. And what Jesus is driving home and what the writer of Hebrews is driving home to those people, because remember, what's happening is they're thinking about going back. And, and I, I've got to try to stay with my outline, okay? Do your best, Pastor. Listen to this passage from Luke, which is about counting the cost. A powerful, I just want to remind you children, the strength of the Word. We, we are so used to sweet and motivational and light and encouraging, and all of that's good. But brother, there's some tough stuff in the Word of God. Listen to this passage. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Now listen, you can't carry the cross with your hands full. 
In our culture today, it's, it's just, give me, give me more, more, more. You can't carry the cross with your hands full. Somewhere, something's got to be laid down. And this is what Jesus is saying, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across. You people are thinking about going back, and, and it could be, it could be that you got the wrong message somewhere. Somewhere you got the idea that being a Christian would be a, a, a walk in the park. But that's not the way Jesus describes it. Now, this is exactly what he's getting at. In other words, it isn't about, it isn't just about how you get into the kingdom, but how you walk. It, is, it isn't just about how you get into the kingdom, but what is expected of you have it after having entered. And I want to break this down, if I can, with three life lessons this morning. First, it is impossible to oppress, to profess. It is impossible to profess an acceptance of God while rejecting the claims of God's Word. You say, I believe. Well, you know, that's, that's man's Word. That's, that's that the Bible written by man. You can't really... You know, that's a, it's got some little good wisdom in it, but no, you can take that position. You can hold to that, but you can't call yourself a Christian rejecting the very book that tells you how you become a follower of Christ. This isn't in the Wall Street Journal. This isn't in the New York Times. This isn't in the great histories of the world. No, no, if you want to believe in Christ, you come to this book, and you take what this book says about him. And this is what's going on in our culture. The writer of Hebrews is trying to convey to these people, again, they're facing persecution, they're thinking about going back to Judaism, and he's just reminding them, hold on, please, this is so important. This is so important. People would say, and we've had this, Lisa's had this so many times at Walmart. She talked to somebody, here's what they say. Well, I believe, I just don't believe the way you do, but I believe in God. Hold everything. Yes, there are secondaries. We've talked about that a hundred times. Which, which way do you baptize? What Do you use wine or grape juice for communion? Yes, those kind of things. But, but there are other things. No, we really ought to believe the same things. We must believe the same things if we're going to say we're Christians. Jesus is the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, as we recite in our catechisms and our Apostles' Creed. And the writer is wanting them to know to go back is to reject the Word of God. To back up at this point is to say, I don't care what the book says. I know as much about it as you do. I think that's a, I have to say that I feel that's a pet peeve in my life. I spend hours, 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 hours reading and study and preparation and I just get the feeling sometimes that many people I encounter just say, well, that's your opinion. Not if it's this word. If I am faithfully unpacking this word, it is God's word coming to you. And we must respond. And the writer's letting them know, you can't claim that you believe in God while rejecting the things he says. And thinking, oh, I'll go back here. I still believe in God. I'm leaving Christianity. I'm going back to Judaism. But I still believe in God. I haven't stopped believing in God. I hear people say that, and setting, setting aside the current crisis. I'm not talking about that now, but I encounter people all the time who never darken the doors of the church, and if you talk to them, they say, oh yeah, I believe, I still believe in God. 
But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you believe in him, you will live. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say in chapter? Was it chapter 12? Verse 14, where he says, He that believes in me, the works I've done, he will do also. And what was the number one work Jesus did that you and I can do? Obey God. I can't do miracles. I can't walk on water. I can't multiply loaves and fishes. But I can obey the Father. Now listen to this again. There's a passage here that echoes what we just read. And this is from Luke chapter 9. Listen to it. As they were walking along, as they were walking, as they were walking along the road, just think of the joy people are missing by not being here to watch me stumble all over myself. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Are you sure you know what you're signing up for when you make that statement, in other words? We're not going down to the Ritz-Carlton. We're going to find a place under a bridge tonight. You sure that's what you want? You're sure you're committed to that experience? Then listen, he said to another man, follow me. And, and, but, but he replied, the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus replied, and Jesus replied, let the dead bury their dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. Boy, that sounds so cold and heartless. What do you, how can you do that? I mean, to factor that into a culture where just about everybody in, in, in kind of employment now, if a loved one family member dies, they get three days off. And then contrast that with Jesus, say, this is the shiftlet paraphrase, okay? Tough luck, buddy. You got work to do. Get about it. Let the dead bury their own dead. You see, Jesus is not being insensitive. In that culture, and if I understand it right, even today, they bury you in the Middle East the same day you die. And what Jesus is saying, you're using this as a cop-out. Because by the time you get word that your father has died, unless you live a block down the street, he's going to be buried before you get there. You're just using this as a cop-out. You're, you're trying to get out of the call of God on your life by this cockamamie excuse. You better think about what you signed up for. He goes on then, and he says this. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom, service in the kingdom of God. Let's put it in a modern, can we put it in a modern context? Texting or Facebooking while you're driving. You ain't fit to be on the road. Now I go by people all the time, and you do too. But it's especially alarming when you're on a motorcycle. Because you ain't got no shelter, you know, if they get, if they, you watch people and they're going like this. Is it me that people not know how to stay on the right side of the line? Or is it they're on their phone? And this is what Jesus is saying, you know, not a lot of uh, uh, young people here, and most of us probably below my age, don't remember how it was when you had a garden at home and you had that little plow thing and you had to make a straight row. Jesus says, if you're going to keep looking back at what you left, if you're going to keep thinking, boy, I wish I was back there, you're not fit for the kingdom. That's strong words, isn't it? And this is exactly what he's saying to the Hebrews there in chapter 4. You're thinking about going back. 
And it shows there's a breakdown somewhere. You didn't hear the message. But this is a treasure that takes everything you have. Then the author moves to the second part of this. He moves to the second part of this. The only alternative to faithfulness is death. There is no third option. Obey God or die. Listen again. Keep in mind, we're talking about the writer of Hebrews is referring back to that time when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. God brought them to the promised land. And they refused to believe God, to trust God, as we looked at the Scriptures last week, and enter the promised land. And they thought, okay, there must be a different option. And as we saw last week, they said, let's, let's pick a new leader and just go back to Egypt. And the message is, there is no going back. The only thing behind you, when you and I become Christians, the only thing behind us is death. Life is before us. What does he say there in one of those passages of Deuteronomy? I put before you two choices, life or death. Choose life that your, you and your seed should live. There is no alternative to faithfulness but death. Now, maybe I'm not saying it the right way there, but I wanted you to see this. Listen to what he says. He says, let us, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isn't that interesting? He goes into this discussion about the power of the word to kill. And you say, well, Pastor, where, where are you getting that? I'm getting it from the context of what this story is about. The children of Israel came to the wilderness... And they came to the promised land. They said, we can't do it. And what's God say? He says, okay, you will all die in the wilderness. Everyone 20 years and older will die in this wilderness. The ones under that age, I will bring into the promised land in 40 years. But everybody else is going to die. Do you see the implication? Faithfulness, belief, trust, or death. Now, I'm not talking about our faith wavering at times or struggling with doubts. I'm talking about a rebellious attitude that says, I will not do what God's Word says, period. The only alternative is faithfulness or death. We don't have that in our culture. You know, we live in this culture where we have so many choices. Are you like me? You go to the gas station. Now, all I want to do is buy gas. That's all I want. I don't want to take a survey. I don't want to get my car washed. I don't want this. I don't want that. Do you have a button? Do you have a this? Blah, 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 blah. No, I, and you'll see me down there at the gas station. I'm yelling, I just want to buy my gas. 53 options. That's the culture we live in, isn't it? All kinds of choices, all kinds of options. But when it comes to Christian faith, my friends, there is one choice and beyond that away from that in uh, on the other side of that is nothing but death now listen to this passage from that context and moses has gone back god has said to him we saw last week they were going to stone uh, caleb and joshua 
They said, we ain't going to go in. We'll get a new leader. So God says to Moses, I'm not reading that part. God says to Moses, okay, they're all going to die in the wilderness. Now listen to what happens. Moses reported to this to all the Israelites, and they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we've sinned. Now you're expecting a response that says, okay, that's better. Let's get on. We can do this. That's not what you hear. In two words, Moses says, essentially, too late. We effectively, well, let's see, I can't. It is possible we lost a a couple a few months ago. Because the question was asked on Wednesday night, do you get a second chance? In life, you get second chances. But in death, if you're not ready when the death angel comes, you are forever separated from Christ. Hebrews 9.28, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. You cannot get right with God after you leave this world. It's too late then. But here, you would expect God to give them a second chance. Okay, way to go. Let's get it going. That's not what he says. Listen. Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? See, yesterday, it was going to the land. That was the command. Don, we're not going to do that. Today, it's go back into the wilderness. And they say, oh, no, we, we don't want to go back there. We weren't really serious about that. We were just having a bad day. No, no. No, no, this is where the discerner of the heart and the intentions and the motives of the heart are clearly known to God. Moses says, why are you sinning? Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. How much in our culture are Christians trying to do things in a way other than God and think it's going to work? And God says, no. This will not succeed. Do not go up. The Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Notice, this isn't the giants they were worried about. Moses is saying to them, listen, you you don't understand. You can't even whip these people who are there. Last Yesterday, you were worried about the giants and wouldn't be able to fight them. Here, these are just normal people, and you won't be able to fight them. Why? Because the Lord isn't with you. Why isn't the Lord with you? Because of your rebellion. Because you have turned away from the Lord, He will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, we know better than God, and we know better than Moses, we're going to go. In their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Amalekites who lived in that hill country, came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Horma. Man, I've got to stay with my thoughts, but there's a ton and a half of good preaching right there in that text about our culture, our time, and our country who keeps thinking that we can reject and turn from God and still pray for Him to bless us. Now, contemporarily, that's the historic example. They were judged by God, and He said, it's not going to work now. You have rebelled against me. Contemporarily, as it relates to the people in Hebrews itself, he's saying this, no sort of persecution 
that you may face will be anything like the judgment of God if you turn your back on Him. Listen to this. This is from Johannes. And I tell you, these people had no names. Let me just tell you. Whatever happened to Smith and Jones? <laughs> Johannes Ocolampadius. What a name. He died in 1531. He said this about this text. He said, What the apostles already said for the sake of confirmation, he repeats, so that no one would think that it is a light matter to provoke the wrath of God upon themselves, or that without penalty they can fall away from the one who is the fountain of life. The people apparently have this idea, well, we'll just go back, it'll be okay. God will understand. No. You have a choice, faithfulness or death. Now listen to this. The writer doesn't stop with God's ability to kill with His Word and bring life with His Word. He highlights the Word's ability to reveal the deceptiveness of our hearts. It is a discerner. Listen to it again. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now let's talk about that word open, exposed, naked. All things are naked and open. John Chrysostom died, and one of the church fathers died in 407. Here's what he says about this verse. He says, what is meant by open? The metaphor comes from the skins which are drawn off from the prey. Theodoret of Sir, who died in 466, said, the phrase laid bare to the eyes is a metaphor from sacrificed beast. In other words, as a hunter goes out and kills an animal and then peels the skin back and sees everything inside. It's very graphic, isn't it? And for those of us who don't hunt or don't know anything about it, we might think of it in the context of a modern autopsy where they cut you open. And even if it looks like you died in your sleep, they're able to get in there and find out what really killed you. This is the thought that God sees inside of us. And he knows everything there is to know about us. That's a little scary, isn't it? See, why would, why would God tell these people, say, I'm saved, I can't be lost, why do I need to know this? Because of the tendency of our own hearts to lead us astray. And by the way, this isn't just these two guys picking up on that word and telling us what that word meant. It's in the Scriptures again and again. The eyes are, the, uh, his eyes are on the way of mortals. He sees their every step. There is no deep shadow nor utter darkness where evildoers can hide. That was Job, by the way. Job 34, 21 and 22. If you picked up an outline, you know that. From, from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. That was Psalm 33. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. 
the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Jeremiah 23, who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth? Where do you think you live? Proverbs 5, 21, your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. See, God's trying to say to these people, you, you think you're going back for legitimate reasons, but I can see in your heart, and I know what's in there and why you're going back. And it's because you don't have a proper grasp upon who Christ is. Life lesson number three. Faithfulness begins. So here's what we have, right? You can't say you believe and reject God's Word. There's only one alternative to faithfulness, and that's death. You either believe and trust God and live, or you disbelieve and reject Him and not trust Him and die, both spiritually and physically. And then the third one is faithfulness begins with honest repentance and expressions of need. Let's talk about that a minute. Have you ever been in a position to say to God, I'm afraid? Do you think that's something you shouldn't say to God? Here, here, here's something I, I just I don't get... It, it's so clear to me, and please, I'm not trying to be uh, arrogant or presumptuous. I hope that's not the case, but I just don't get this. We say we believe in a God who knows all things, and yet we persist in believing we can hide things from Him. As if He doesn't know what I'm feeling or thinking or going through until I tell Him. I'm sorry, but there's a passage. I'm never able to remember where it is, but there's a passage, I believe, in Isaiah that says, before they ask... I'll answer. In the, in the Psalms 139, there's a passage that says, He knows my thoughts are far off. He doesn't mean that He's in Broadway and I'm in Winchester and knows my thoughts. He means He knows what I'm going to think a year from now. He knows where I'm going to be and what I'm going to be facing. And so when I say to God, I'm afraid, guess what I'm doing? I'm being honest in telling Him what He already knows. And in telling Him, I cast myself upon Him for His help. A lot of people right now are afraid. Whether it's to get the illness or the economy collapsing, whatever, they're afraid. But the danger we have in this moment especially, I want to come back in closing, what I said earlier, drawing back and holding back, drawing back because of persecution, and staying back because of the medical crisis. Here's what I know. This is human nature. But some people are staying back. It's got nothing to do with the health crisis. They see a chance to get out of church. Hey, I'm off the hook for a month or two, man. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to give. See, I can't look at someone and say that. And that's not my point. I cannot look around this room and say to this person or that person or the other person, you know, you're just hanging out because you don't want to come to church. But God knows that. And, and some of these excuses I've heard tell me. Let me think about this. Discipleship. How are you going to live out discipleship during this crisis? So you're not going to go to church for six months. 
What are you doing with God the rest of the time? Are you watching any programs? Are you reading your Bible? Are you doing any prayer? Have you found any devotional books to read? Or do you just get up and go through the week and the next week and the week after that without one thought of God? See, God knows that that is a situation in my heart where something's wrong. It's got nothing to do with the medical crisis. I'm just looking at an out, man. I got out of church. Can I talk to you just a moment? I don't know what the governor said or didn't say. I won't know next week either because I'm not following the story. And I said it Wednesday night. We talked to Scott Wednesday night. If you can't follow it without losing your mind, cut everything off. God is not changed by what you don't know. Christians can feed into the frenzy. The parent, I don't know what the governor said. Until the police come in this door and threaten to cart me off, we're going to have church. It's not heroic. It's not obstinate. It's, it's, it's my conviction that they're operating with a double standard. But now listen to me. If you and I are afraid to come to church because the governor might be upset in relation to a health crisis, how are we going to stand up? When they come in and say, you can't preach against this, or you can't preach against that. I'm not saying the people staying away. If they're legitimately afraid of the medical issues, God bless them. But, but here's the problem. If I don't see the, temp- the possibility of the double standard in my own heart, then down the road, a bigger challenge is going to come, and I'm going to say, well, you know, the governor said... People are talking about how we're going to oppose the government. And again, I can't say who's not here because of anything the governor said. But I can bet you there's some people that say, well, you know, the governor said we better stay home. And when the governor says stop preaching against that lifestyle or stop preaching against abortion or stop preaching against that, then will we do what the governor says? We better not go to church today because the pastor's going to talk about those things and the governor said we shouldn't do that. I know it's not a perfect apple-to-apples comparison, so be fair with me, okay? I'm just illustrating it. Listen to this, Pastor. Listen to this. This is from Desiderius Erasmus. There's another one. There's another one. There's names. Desiderius was a Catholic who uh, was in, was in a debate with Martin Luther over free will. But Desiderius was also very critical of the extremes and abuses in the Catholic Church. And even though he never left the Catholic Church, he said very forcefully that they'd gotten off track and agreed with Luther in many things. And Desiderius, who died in 1536, said this about this passage of Hebrews. Just as God was not deceived in the past by the murmuring of the Hebrews and had no need of any other sword to destroy them than his divine command... So Christ will not be deceived now by the person who professes to live according to the gospel, but is secretly in love with what belongs to the world. And now I come to the final passage, and I've got to, I'm sorry, I'm dragging it along here. Listen, notice this shift. Notice the shift. He goes from the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It'll separate bone and marrow. It discerns thoughts. Everything's open before it. And then he says, therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Hang on to it. Why? Because our Savior conquered on our behalf and is in heaven. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now notice, this is very important. It's very important. This is not motivation to keep me from sinning. It is a comfort that when I'm struggling, I go to him. Here's the solution. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. I have a great high priest standing before God in heaven. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with grace and confidence, boldly before the throne of God, so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, the Hebrews were thinking about every other solution except that one. Go to your high priest. Go to the one who died for you. Cast yourselves at his feet. Cry out for his grace and mercy, his strength, his hope, his assurance. Amen?